Hello, welcome to Rising with the Tide. I'm Skander as usual, but not as usual today. We are missing a very important member of our group, Jamie, but in exchange, we have the amazing Andrew with us, who is a student at SUM, at the Department of Development and Environment in the University of Oslo. So he's studying with me currently, and he's been gracious enough to come and lend a helping hand uh, for this episode recording. Andrew, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to talking with, with Paul Robbins today. I've, I've gotten to know him through his writing, so I'm, I'm glad to be part of the conversation. Yeah. How do you feel about uh, your, your first podcast episode recording? I'm, I'm excited about it. You're right. This is my, my podcast debut, so I hope <laughs> I, can, I can rise to the occasion. Yeah, in 20 years when we'll, we'll be doing your uh, your Oscar uh, nomination video, they'll be they'll be bringing this up. So yeah. Um, but yeah, as you've uh, as you've mentioned today, we have the amazing Paul Robbins with us. Paul is the director of the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies. He has done extensive work on topics of political ecology, on uh, ind- indigeneity, on biodiversity in general, and we're so so happy to be able to talk to you today. Paul Robbins, thank you for coming. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to the conversation. Yes, it's uh, it's always a little bit surreal uh, sometimes on the podcast when we get to like read so much about our guests or of our guests' work and then get to meet them. Well, <laughs> I don't know if you can call this meet, but you know what I mean. Uh, Zoom meet them. Uh, and, you know, Andrew and I both have the book in question that uh, we've both read, the Paul Robbins' Political Ecology, uh, a critical introduction third edition as you've mentioned because uh you said there was something missing from the other two maybe (laughs) well actually the other two are stuffed with very old thinking this is just uh mostly old thinking okay right (laughs) is there (laughs) is there a fourth edition in the works no there isn't i think it's time to turn it over to somebody else i think all right all right (laughs) this is uh this is where that book comes uh comes to a, a happy ending Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, hey, you've you've uh, guarded the door of political ecology maybe for 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 a while. Time to let someone else guard the castle. I I would hate that metaphor. Um, <laughs> if, if there's a grain of truth in it, I feel terribly guilty. Uh, I am like the doorman. I simply open it when you come in and welcome you. That's that's my job. Um, so maybe we can, you know, not everyone uh, has had the pleasure of reading your book as listening. So maybe we can just go through a little bit um, about you, about your institute and the work that you've done throughout the years. Yeah, sure. Um, I, I went off to college to study. Well, I didn't know what, right? And I, I found myself in anthropology. I'm actually what I call a, a recovering archaeologist. So I, w- I was interested in material culture. I was interested in what you could read from the land so that you could see germs of what was coming. And that was the first time I read Marx because of the social sciences, uh, archeology span in a sense should be the most Marxist. Um, And in a sense, on a good day it is, on a bad day it has a kind of uh, uh, problematic sort of systems thinking to it. But the point is many of the things that I was thinking about, about the land, about context, about materiality were in what I was studying, but it wasn't quite right. I went to India to study archeology, span um, fell in love with India and the landscapes there, understood that there was a violent political economy that needed to, that you need to come to terms with and also just a vibrancy. Uh, and archeology just wasn't gonna do it. So I quit and took some time off before going back to grad school. And in Clark University in 1990, 
politically, what we now call political ecology was sort of effervescent, you know, it was just sort of the language that many people were learning to speak. Pierce Blakey spent two weeks on hand with us doing a workshop on like how to do explanation. And it never, I never unthunk it. So um, that's, that was the trajectory. And to return to India and look at the politics of the landscape. And I've, I've spent my, much of my career on and off in, in uh, different parts of India. Um, but, you know, intellectually, if I can keep going on this. Yeah, of course, of course. Um, you go through different instances and folds. And sometimes you're swept along by the tide of uh, what's in the literature. I've had a chance to see that now because people are using framings and phrasings that I would never use in a lifetime. I've <laughs> seen them and they're, they're very powerful and they're obviously doing great work. I'm not going to call any of them out, but um, the tide doesn't sweep me as much as it used to. In the 1990s, epistemology was the question. And so I think the first third of my career is about the politics of knowledge. Like, how do you know what kinds of sciences are produced by colonialism mm-hmm. and, you know, and, and those violences? What are the possibilities of that kind of science and what are its limitations? It was a very sort of very Foucaultian moment in the 90s. The science wars were happening. I found them very dissatisfying. Um, which takes you to a second stage of the work, which is, all right, let's assume that politics have knowledge, that they're colonized, that there's a violence and that it's tied to capitalism. Um, Yet science is still cool. Science still answers questions. Mm -hmm. You can still count birds and (laughs) you can still take a look at the reproductive cycle of sheep and learn a great deal about political economy. So there was a a rematerialization of my work in in the 2000s um, prior to what people call the material turn, uh, because Marxists have always been material. Thank yep. you very much. <laughs> and then finally, then in the last few years, I came here to be a dean, to be an administrator of a unit that, whatever else it is, its faculty are very problem focused. They want to solve problems. And I'd spent my life as a critical theorist. My job was to tell you uh, how everything went wrong, not how to fix anything. And that's really been an interesting 10 year journey is to be with people like my colleague, Holly Gibbs, who actually has to do the work to try to get people to not cut down forests. You really actually do it without, mm-hmm. without colonial violence or with only some colonial violence. And I'm, and I'm, I'm entranced by their, their, their possibilism and their, their optimism is the wrong word, but their problem solving this. So that's my, that's my autobiography. None of it's changed that much. It's always been something that other people would call political ecology. But I have, I have gone from epistemological critique to something more like um, uh, politically, economically influenced problem solving. Right. <laughs> Does that help? Does that yeah, help? yeah. I mean, uh, there you kind of find the, um, the ever-present refusal to be to be boxed in, I think, by many in, in our in our field, if I can even count Andrew and and I in in the same uh, class, let's say. But um, but no, that that's uh, that's fascinating. I think it's important for us to understand as well how the ideas that we that are kind of mainstream, as as your book is in in our study circles, um, how they came to be, like the development of those ideas. I think is not often that that obvious so there's a huge uh, amount there's a lot of fighting underneath there yeah that all sort of vanishes 
you know, with 20 years of hindsight, but at the time it was, there were very divisive kinds of conversations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was hoping that you could tell us a little bit more about your work at UW-Madison and the Nelson Institute, because uh, the university has played such a large role when it comes to modern conservation and restoration ecology. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on the direction of environmental studies at the Institute. Yeah, good call. So um, this is obviously, the not obviously, but I think the birthplace of restoration ecology, although Leopold did the work here on, on crafting or recrafting landscapes. And it's never gone away. Our landscape architecture program, the Nelson Institute itself is filled with restorations. Um, and that's, I think a really, it's, a, it's, it's it, the university is soaked in it. The idea that you would go out and put your hands on the land to you know, restore it. Uh, the, that's on the one hand. On the other hand, what you have is this incredibly strong, though scattered, uh, political economy school, but especially indigenous studies um, and American Indian studies, which are absolutely different, um, which uh, projects an an immediate critique of the idea of restoration, especially by Anglo scientists. So what I like about UW is that it's got these sort of problem solver, create landscapes people, people who actually have spent a hundred years trying to quote, I'm doing air quotes, people can't hear them, um, (laughs) restore, the ecosystem when you have indigenous communities like the Menominee for whom, first of all, they've already, it's, it's already there, pre-restored. <laughs> they control a vast forest that I think the, the idea that the, uh, the uh, how would I put the white savior model of restoration uh, seems quite at odds. And the other question of course is when do you want to restore it to, you know, 1491, 1950. So, what I like about Wisconsin is that it has present the contradictory elements of being in the Anthropocene, which is admitting that you put your hands on the land, that you're crafting the landscape, and an automatic critique of, of the colonial politics of that. So I love that. Is that what the Institute works on? Yes and no. Um, that's what's on my mind. The Institute is, is constituted by its faculty, and our faculty do all kinds of things. Air quality and health. Um, Amazonian deforestation and the political economy of the leather industry, um, work on water quality on indigenous land throughout Montana and hopefully uh, soon here in Wisconsin, how to measure biodiversity using microphones. I mean, it's a really eclectic community. And that I think is the real magic of, of UW, both the Institute as a kind of small version and the university as a whole, it's giant and chaotic and filled with contradictions. And I guess that is really helping me um, be okay with my own contradictions. But I can fall in love with somebody measuring biodiversity with a microphone one day and a colonial critique of conservation, which we have plenty of here on the other. So to answer your question, Andrew, like, yes, there's the, the, the powerful history of critique here. Eric Olin Wright, Right, I mean, some of the great political economists uh, are and have been present. And at the same time, there are lots of people out there counting birds and trying to put the trees back on the land that can harbor their, their habitat. That's super cool. So I, I guess that's what I'd say is I've had opportunities to leave this position and this institution, but I think they feed the undercurrents of contradiction which sit in my dialectics yeah. or something like that. 
Yeah, it sounds like Leopold's land ethic and the the history of critique are still alive and well at UW Madison. Has your has your work there made you more optimistic about the ability of institutions uh, to work towards environmental awareness? Um, I'm not sure about environmental awareness, but I do think that my time here has made me more optimistic about how institutions can enter the aporia, as Joel Wainwright would put it, of decolonizing development. That is, you, you can't not, you know you've got to do something to solve climate change and massive deforestation. You need, you need to exercise intellectual as well as material power. While at the same time knowing that that power itself, this, this university sits on Ho-Chunk land and the Ho-Chunk were removed violently uh, and refused to go back, go away. They're still with us here in communities. And so a lot of my last 10 years has been discovering the indigeneity of the land on which I live and, and having productive dialogues with many of the native members of the native nations, the dozen, one dozen native nations that occupy the state now known as Wisconsin and know that they can enter dialogue. The dialogue will be fraught and problematic, but that you can, you can start that dialogue and be productive. Yeah, I'm much more confident about the future now than I was a decade ago, even though our environmental problems have gotten much worse. Yeah. So my, yeah. the other thing that gives me hope, and I'll just throw this out, is that we attract thousands and thousands, we have 40,000 students here, right? No. A lot of them are really, really keen on addressing environmental problems. And that includes people that you didn't used to see. Engineers, young people in the business school, they will not settle for, you know, and, and we can talk about greenwashing, we can talk about, the problems, right, of the political economy of neoclassical economics. Yeah, right? we have our own uh, business students uh, nearby. <laughs> but the, they still want a double major mm -hmm. in environmental studies where they, their ideas can be problematized, where they will hear contradictory voices. That's very promising. Mm -hmm. So I guess I, I do think that I, I have increased my confidence in institutions to do this, even though the conditions under which they have to operate, both environmentally and in terms of political economy, suck more now than they did when I got here. Yeah, um, so sure. again, a contradiction. Yeah, I, uh, I was watching this uh, video of yours by our good friends at uh, Undisciplined Environments uh, on their YouTube channel, which I'm not sure exactly what the name of their YouTube channel is. I think they've, it's not exactly Undisciplined Environments. But anyways, um, they interviewed you uh, very briefly. They asked you some questions and uh, like it's two minute videos or something. And in one of them you said, uh, that it was really difficult to partner with uh, natural scientists or physical scientists. Um, <laughs> can you maybe tell us a little bit about that difficulty? You said that it was going to be like the challenge of the coming years, if I understood it well. But can you tell us a little bit more about that difficulty? And if you feel like your institute maybe is a place to kind of bridge that divide? Uh, yes. So that's, so that's my old epistemologist speaking, right? Right. <laughs> I came out of the science wars in the 1990s, where if you identified the social underpinnings of what we might call biological or physical sciences, that is the gendered nature of that, the class nature, the race nature of that, if you identified those things, if you were a genius like Donna Haraway or even a lowly plebeian like me, the science community really got defensive. This is the 1990s. It was sort of like, you're saying our knowledge doesn't count. You're a relativist. The so-called affair and all that were very primitive conversations. We have come so far since then. 
I mean, the sciences admit that not only are opportunities in science truncated because of historical race and gendered inequities, the National Science Foundation says as much. They've hinted that that might actually impact their results. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, we won the argument from 1995. <laughs> but you're still always going to be in an epistemological tension when you do the actual work. So when I'm in the field with one of my conservation biology uh, colleagues, Kriti Karant, who is a traditional conservationist, she really believes that Adabasi communities should, if they want to leave parks, should be encouraged to do so and figure out ways to make it happen. So, you know, that feels a little expropriative, right? So she's there and I'm where I am. Um, but the project we did together on bird biodiversity, political economy of coffee and labor relations, both of us learned a lot. And if you wait for your epistemologies or even your politics to align perfectly, you miss the opportunity to do important work. So what I like about the Institute um, is that the faculty are willing to do that. On an annual basis, we have the author of Muslim Environmentalisms, Dr. Anna Gade, who is a brilliant humanist, reading the post-tenure file of Dr. Tracy Holloway, who is a genius in air quality and health. And if they aren't moved by the experience of that interaction, um, I'd, I'd be surprised. Well, I'm here to tell you that they are moved. <laughs> and that, that mutual understanding is never going to be perfect. They will never epistemologically align, but they're both incredibly talented and they have to come to terms with one another because they live in the same house. The Institute is a little family. I'd also say that we're, most of the faculty who work with us, including folks in the Institute, are, let's just say, fairly disciplinary. I'm even a little disciplinary, right? But the students never are. So our graduate students, this is how the Institute works. If you get a PhD with us, there is no curriculum. I want to repeat that. There is no, you just go fishing. But there is a requirement that if you are basically in working at the edges of the biological sciences, you've got to have a humanist or a social scientist on that committee and vice versa, which is a little bit like geography, which is the field I came out of. That's really interesting. So even if the faculty are disciplinary in nature, the student it experiences emergence, like a greater than the sum of the parts on a good day if it's working. And I do believe in that um, strongly. Mm-hmm. Do I wish our students were better trained in the kinds of things that I think are important, which is how race, or race nature, gender, power actually impact the knowing process in their own dissertations? Yeah, I wish they were better trained, but um, that's on us, not on them. So. That's, that's the beginning of what I'd have to say about the Institute. That it's, a, it's an experiment that was started in 1970 and it's changed over 50 years. Um, but it, I believe it really holds uh, some answers to questions that are vexing a lot of the academy about how to sort this out. Yeah, it feels very similar to, to our own uh, Arnaness uh, SUM except maybe a little bit bigger <laughs> we we have we have what like 80 people total in our halls uh student and faculty together so yeah <laughs> we're not we're not super baby yeah it seems that the uh the emphasis on interdisciplinarity is is one of the greatest strengths of political ecology but but also one of the strengths of the Nelson Institute uh and it's it's what makes the research so exciting and energetic But one topic that comes up in your book is the absence of uh, this integrated set of concepts, methods, or theories for political ecologists. 
And when you draw from so many academic disciplines and intellectual traditions, clarity and coherence can obviously be an obstacle. So I was wondering if you could talk about some of the challenges of pursuing interdisciplinary research. Well, so first is the methodological and epistemological uh, orthogonality of some members of a team, because interdisciplinary work sometimes requires multidisciplinary, requires more than one person. I'd like to think we're all interdisciplinary. We, we contain multitudes, we do, but there, there's the first problem. I think I've already kind of spoken to that in, in the previous question. I think the other challenge is one about disciplinary power, which is inherent in the academy itself, that all animals are equal, but some are more equal than others. Um, historically, if you look at large multi-investigator grants at the NSF, um, the National Science Foundation, which I've participated in, social science has always been an afterthought. That's less true now than it used to be, but that's one of the challenges. Is there's power within the knowledge system, within the ecosystem of knowledge, which I think represents another enormous um, challenge. For political ecology though, in particular, which is what you're trying to identify, the absence of a single coherent you know, canon, I mean, there's a little bit of canon, means that sometimes the work can blow in the wind of, I don't wanna call them fads, but I would call them explanatory and conceptual habits. So I spoke a particular language in 1994, by 2001, I was speaking a different language, uh, which I thought was better. Um, and then by the two, late mid 2000, I'm like, oh, I need to go back to my old language. And then all these new things kind of blow through um, political ecology because it embraces anything. It loves to, to just um, mimic anything it sees around itself in the physical and social sciences. And I think there's a fadism there. That's not to say that I don't think vegetal geographies about which I've been reading aren't really interesting. The power that plants and their own metabolism exert on and, and are exerted on in political economy. That's super interesting, but I didn't need the word vegetal geographies to say that. <laughs> I mean, you could have said that 20 years ago. So there's a fadism I, uh, that isn't maybe as big a problem as some people say, because under, underneath it, there's a constant dialogue of familiar yeah. themes, nature, power, Right. It, 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 so, OK, actor network theory can't be, you know, glued onto Marxism without problems. OK, but there are ways to tell these stories that can change the world that are consistent. So my faith in political ecology is that while the fads blow through on the wind, the underlying concerns, the urge to justice, the urge to anti-colonial, we don't say decolonial anymore unless we want to give the land back, um, which we should. Uh, those urges are right, and, and they point towards a, a better future. So political ecology, those texts which we call political ecology, even if they use a language that is unrecognizable to me or, or hard to recognize, I, I know they're still pointed as part of a, a familial tradition um, that is better than the alternative, which is apolitical ecology. And it may not be the best we can do, but it's the better we can do. So the weaknesses of political ecology are its incoherence, its fatism, its, uh, its orthogonality of epistemologies that all are living together. But those are some of its strengths too. It still, it still exhibits all those strengths. Yeah. And, and in a sense, the, uh, 
I think the fadisms that you mentioned are also helping like keep people in maybe political ecology yes. themes because you know we need a little bit of like dynamic spirit to the field to kind of keep it uh, attractive in a sense or else you know people kind of see that it's very static and and well basically just dead and think oh well i don't want to go into that field it looks like nothing's moving doesn't look like there's anything sexy to it you know in a you're sense. To- yeah <laughs> you're totally right right that is why the embracing you know why when i first when we first renamed the cultural ecology specialty group of the association of the american association of geographers to cultural and political ecology it was a it was a vicious debate um, uh, it went on for years and then it happened. The room was filled with white guys. Well, now when I go to those specialty group meetings, 25, 20 years, however, decades later, it looks really different. I mean, just looks different. And people are coming from first generation educational backgrounds. There are people of color in the room and there are mostly women. Something went right, right? Something happened. And it certainly wouldn't have happened if somebody had closed down the walls and said, well, this is our canon. This is who who we are and we all have to study Durkheim. Oh my gosh. On the other hand, (laughs) nobody gets out of here without reading Marx. And so I I still believe that there are certain things you gotta hang on to, Uh, but that's an old man talking, an old white man talking. Uh, I do think the dynamism comes from an admission that there's never, these things are never enclosed and yes, vegetal geographies, I get it, I like it. If you're writing about them, I'm gonna read more of your stuff. If I never use that turn of phrase myself, it isn't because I don't love your work. Uh, it's just, we all have our own yeah. uh, intellectual history. So I'm just, that's a long way standard of saying yes. No, yeah, yeah, the only constant is, uh, is change, right? Uh, another thing that you mentioned uh, in passing was uh, the word apolitical ecology. And Andrew and I, uh, became quite familiar with that term, seeing as we were assigned uh, to write an essay on it. <laughs> How do you several... define it? <clears throat> oh God, I would not even begin to try. Um, no, but I, I, I think I really enjoyed um, your exposition of the uh, divide, the apolitical political divide. Um, I was thinking maybe we could talk a little bit about that and how you kind of mention apolitical uh, ecology as a misnomer of some sorts so that there is no kind of neutral uh, ecology. Could could you maybe explain a little bit uh, to our listeners about that, maybe for those of us? In plain terms, apolitical ecology is a claim that certain kinds of science makes about itself, which it's a check that it can never cash, right? It's always political. But to be troubled by that fact is to travel into a different country. Like if that keeps, that starts to keep you awake at night, that your ecology is political and that matters uh, in the world, that is, that's the transformative moment. It isn't that there is a political ecology. It's that there's the conceit of a politics. And, um, and that's an epistemological problem. That's a science problem, right? That there's some universal truth. I apologize, my, I should shut off the little dinging thing. Um, so I guess that's my answer is that there's no apolitical ecology and that the, the pursuit of apolitical ecology has been part of colonial violence and that political ecology doesn't solve that problem. Giving the land back solves the problem, but you, you can't do conservation 
without confronting the politics of conservation. And I believe in both. I believe in saving species. One million species are on the brink of extinction. In North America, we have lost one third of bird life since 1970. That's a scandalous violence that I must address. But to pretend that that somehow doesn't have anything to do with whose land we took or who we enslaved like would be dangerous. It would be a mistake yeah. to somehow separate those two. Yet the urge is always there to do so. Political ecology is the, ad the admission of the impossibility of being political. Yeah. And yet, and yet it seems to kind of be weaponized in a sense um, in, in these more like modern times, contemporary times. It's, I, I feel like I see it being modern, uh, weaponized by, for example, more conservative uh, circles, let's say uh, in Europe or the US, um, a few like places that I personally look at more. Um, and also by sometimes people in the more like in the natural sciences like that which is i guess something that you kind of go on to a little bit more is uh how natural sciences can maybe claim itself to be neutral uh in the way that it looks at things and and as you said earlier um in our discussion they never are but how can we i guess how can we kind of uh is there a method and maybe if i don't know if you've attempted this to try and bring in the natural scientists who might see science as this neutral kind of deity in a sense uh and it kind of show them this reverse of the of the coin that any ecology any any study of of nature is inherently political in some way because i've i feel like personally i've had the an issue with that in, in showing some of my friends who are in the in the physical sciences and natural sciences that whatever work they do on nature is inherently political. Like they have this view of, of science as this neutral God. Well, I mean, the answer, I don't have an easy answer. This, this is something that's on my mind. So, you know, yeah, good question, right? Um, but I would say in my experience, it's don't tell, show. So, you know, telling people that is pointless and pointing them towards even the best written critiques of of science and knowledge is a waste of time because you're in, you're in a different framework. But doing actual projects on things that people care about in the world opens the doors of perception. So I believe in team projects. I believe that that's where the future is. And I believe that that's incredibly hard to do, as I've said previously. Like it's not easy, it's not the easiest way to do it, it's the hardest way. But that's where the political work is done because it's in personal relationships of mutual learning, where the politics are actually always boiling there, right? The epistemological politics. But as long as, you know, the end game is like those, we don't want to lose those hornbills. <laughs> we want to protect those cranes. I'm, I've become a birdhead, right? Um, <laughs> suddenly dialogues are possible. And that's the other thing that the Nelson Institute has taught me is that we, you know, we have a responsibility to what we call red counties as much as we do blue counties. We're, we are a land-grant institution and ostensibly we serve all the people in the state and climate change affects them all. But if there's two, I say this a lot, so it's a bit of a cliche, but it's true. If there's two things I don't say when I'm in a supper club, a bar basically upstate, it's climate and change. What you start with is trout um, and then you get to stream temperatures and pretty soon you know, you're having a conversation about property and state power 
And you're not going to agree politically on things, but you can at least explore them together and try to find solutions to problems. And it's, it's always going to be a struggle and somebody has to win, somebody has to lose. Otherwise, why study political ecology? But from a natural science framework, to put everybody in that landscape together, you can't help but learn. So I, I believe in shared projects. Um, I'll come back to Holly Gibbs, one of our faculty who works in the Amazon. I think she'd say, I'm a GIS remote sensing person. What I know is how to build models of how deforestation <laughs> happens. But she works with human rights lawyers and people who are following the commodity chain of leather from car seats in the US to horrific relationships and violence against indigenous people in the Amazon. And she knows her work is situated within the very discussion of that thing, which means she knows that there's no apolitical ecology. She would say there's a better way to do remote sensing than a horse way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you can't let your quote politics determine the outcome. I mean, she still comes from a scientific epistemology, but now she's on the other side of the trouble. I mean, I didn't do it. I mean, it's her own work that created this, her own collaborations that created her own discomfiture relative to what it could have been, which would have simply been push a button and measure the trees. So I guess that's the answer is choose objects that everybody cares about. Um, and often those are environmental objects. Yeah. Uh, so that, that's what I'd say. And I think that that's also the answer with our, our very fraught relationships with the native nations. As long as you, you, the guy running the Institute, acknowledge the sovereignty, not only of the land that they're but of their own knowledge and their data, data sovereignty. If you start from that and you really honor it, you can have a conversation about how to manage forests or, or whatever else. So, um, but that's a very difficult moment. To the sovereignty issue is not something that everybody just comes to naturally. Mm -hmm. I'm off topic. No, no, no. We get my point. Uh, we're, we're, we're a podcast of tangents, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> So this claim of political neutrality uh, that you tend to hear from apolitical ecology, uh, it, it speaks to the role of the academic or public intellectual. So I was wondering if your research into political ecology has changed your thinking around uh, the ethical responsibilities of researchers uh, and the need for more political engagement. It's uh, a great question. Um, my you know, my own history of knowledge production follows how, however different it might've been from those who came before me. It's not as different as, as the students that I know now, whose political engagements uh, come very much to the fore, um, especially around the way in which speaking at all, right? You know, is a, is a I mean, this critique's been with us a long time. I mean, it comes from sub subaltern studies, but I, I, you know, I meet students who are, absolutely dissatisfied with the level of political engagement that is suggested in my own work, <laughs> um, direct political engagement. And, and I think that's okay. Jody Emmel, one of my mentors, um, great feminist political ecologist, uh, used to say that the front is long, that there's a lot of allyship trying to move things forward. And it's not always going to look, not everybody's work is going to look the same. And if, there's a critique about my lack of political engagement. I, I'm ready to hear it. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, and I hear it a lot. Uh, I, I think that that's, that's okay because many of the directions that we're trying to move in are, are at least the same 
are in the, in the, walking in the same direction, uh, even in very different places along the front. Uh, it's a martial metaphor. I didn't come up with it. A feminist gave it to me. So I apologize for its warlike nature, but I, I think that was her point was a certain level of pragmatism. I think she would also yeah. have called herself a feminist pragmatist. And that allows you to suffer, metabolize, and re-energize critiques inside yourself as you work. Um, so on the other side, yes, I mean, political engagement is critical. Having said that, having said that, I believe, and here I'm gonna get in myself in trouble, I believe that political engagement should never dampen curiosity. And the, why do research if you knew the answer already? And it seems to me that research is about many things. It's about giving voice and suppressing voice. It's about speaking and learning. Uh, it, it has violence in it, but it also has emancipation. It's all those things, but it's not research if you already know the answer. So I believe, let's not call it science because that's a very specific epistemological position, but I believe in research. And I believe that you should ask questions that you don't know the answer to no matter what your politics are. And I don't see that all the time. Sometimes I see very incurious people, particular practitioners. And those are the ones that I would have the hardest time working with. A physical scientist who can't quite grok their political position relative to some of the constituencies around whom they work, that's a problem, but it's much worse than somebody, it's much better. What, what it would be much worse is somebody who's not curious at all. Yeah. And I worry that certain kinds of political predispositions, all kinds of political predispositions, which we all have, can build in us an incuriosity that denies the possibility of discovery. And I wouldn't work in a university and do research if I didn't think we could discover stuff, mm. new stuff that would make things better. And I said not even denies discovery, but also the possibility of just being wrong. Just being wrong. <laughs> being wrong. Yeah, exactly. So right. many people are, are so afraid of being wrong in academia. I mean, you hear it all the time. They say if you have to come up with these big truths or else you don't get published, you don't get grants, et cetera, et cetera. I've been wrong so many times I can't even tell you. Um, so that's discovery. Discovery is, is the moment of reflection of your own wrongness. Uh, I've come a long way on a lot of things and they've not always made me popular with my brothers and sisters in very similar political positions. Um, you know, I've come to discover that if we want to restore some species who right now are being squeezed through a diversity filter so that even if we built their habitat back and protected where they could live, they're gonna go extinct if we can't expand the gene pool of their diversity. A geneticist taught me that, several geneticists. And then I'm like, well, then let's bank their genes until such a time as we can actually restore these habitats. Because there's only, Extinction is a one-way trip. Uh, that doesn't mean it's not natural, but the rate at which it's occurring is a violence, without question, an interspecies violence. Um, that is not the way I always, you, if you'd have brought genetic engineering to me as a, a political ecological tool in 1995, I'd have said, you're crazy. Um, I believe I was wrong. <laughs> wow, I, there we go. Uh, that's, uh, it's not I often in academia we hear that. It's, it's, a, it's really refreshing. Power. I researched nuclear waste when I was in graduate school. That was gonna be my dissertation. If you told me that nuclear power had a role 
in the at least the maintenance of the climate system to say nothing of the amelioration of, of the catastrophe. If you'd have asked me that in 1992, I'd have said, what are you crazy? Now I'm like convinced. Not so convinced that I couldn't rediscover that I was right, I suppose. But there's no question that a, a real tilt happened at a certain point. And then you start talking about technologies like that. And that's when I get in trouble with my brothers and sisters in places like DeGrove or elsewhere. Um, and uh, I, and I maybe let's, uh, well, let's, yeah. let's go on to degrowth, actually. Let's uh, sure. address that because I think it's uh, an increasingly important topic. And I mean, we see it on the world stage, but also I think even just at local uh, smaller circles, people are questioning this idea of growth, of infinite growth on a finite planet. It's, it's something that activist circles from Extinction Rebellion, for example, to um, international organizations also have questioned. And it has been in question for decades, but I feel like these days, um, at least I feel like I'm seeing it more and more as a, a question of, of uh, related to the climate emergency. And so then that brings about the question of, okay, well, if we can't have infinite growth, then what do we have? And I, I've been wanting to dedicate a couple of episodes, at least of this podcast to degrowth or at least insert degrowth in, because I feel like it's also one of the most misunderstood concepts. A lot of, for example, uh, socialists uh, or Marxists that we've talked to on the show, they instinctively link degrowth to austerity. And I think a lot of people do that. They think degrowth, that means I'm going to have a smaller house, uh, no car and uh, nothing to eat. And, you know, like it's just that that less lessening is scary, even though some of the most popular books are called like Less is More by uh, Jason Hickel. Um, could you maybe tell us a little bit about how you understand degrowth and the I know you've had a little bit of. Uh, what was it, sympathetic disagreements with degrowth and eco-modernism both? Could you maybe go on uh, talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I think I've said a lot about that in other fora, and none of it has produced as much um, light as it has heat. So I may not be the best person to ask on this question. Let me just say from a personal point of view that I count amongst uh, many of the people who I learn a lot from they come from camps that are in an argumentative position around this. So that obviously puts me in an ambiguous um, state and therefore one where you can do a lot of learning. So I learned from a lot of people. So that's my position is that I do research on birds and stuff and wanna collect genes, right? Um, within a political economy of indigenous data sovereignty. So that's what I do. Does it bear on any of those questions? Yes, no. Um, so I, I have the, advantageous position that I don't have to answer the question about who's right and when. I like being in that position because uh, I'm not sure I'm convinced on either side, but they're right. Here's where I'm sympathetic to degrowth. I think Callus in particular has been the most articulate on the question of it's not austerity and it's not Malthus, right? Because that's where my mind goes, right? Degrowth goes to, you know, to a, essentially a an imperialist racist ideology that has been with us for a long time and has not gone away in the environmental community. When they hear degrowth, it doesn't matter what Callis writes, that's what they're thinking, even if they don't admit it. That's why the Sierra Club came out against immigration to the United States in the late 1990s, because they were scared of growth. And I'm here to tell you that 
yeah, you want to disambiguate that scanner. I get it. But mm-hmm. there is a it's, misunderstood is not the right word. I would call it empty signifier. If degrowth can capture both of those things, then it's then we've got a problem. We've got to disambiguate mm-hmm. yeah. what we're really meaning. Callus has gone a long way to do that for me. What he, if I understand part of his claims, what he's saying is that degrowth is the urge to limit yourself for ethical reasons, not because we're gonna run out of stuff. And that makes sense. I believe on the degrowth of guns in the United States, I believe there should be speed limits on highways, right? Because, you know, it's easier to accidentally kill somebody if you're going 85 miles an hour. Um, in the sense that, you know, there, there's not absolute limit to the amount of speed. There's no absolute limits. That's where I do disagree with degrowth. But the urge to limit so that at least you can catch in your rearview mirror where you're going, the rate of change to, to, to put some controls on that seems to me to be entirely ethically defensible within the admission that there's no absolute limits and that there are a lot of people on this planet who need electricity and they need it now and solar panels aren't gonna be enough, okay? So uh, if we need to live simply so that others may simply live, that's the other one of these quasi Malthusian uh, limits arguments, uh, but okay, then that's fine. Just keep Africa out of it. Don't tell Accra that it can't have nuclear power. That's just irresponsible. You wanna talk about my bourgeois lifestyle, and the speed with which it, it directs change, I'm, I'm absolutely ready to discuss that and what it does to labor power and nature. But we already have all those critiques in political ecology. We don't need degrowth to make them. Mm-hmm. Like I can critique capitalism's accumulative force and the second contradiction that it produces that undermines itself. I've got O'Connor for that. I don't need degrowth. I can tell you that, that, that the rapacious destruction of environmental systems upon which other living things depend are absolutely in the maw of accumulative colonial power. I don't need degrowth to tell me that. I just need a common ethical framework that says that's a problem big enough that we should set some controls on it. If that's all degrowth was, there'd be no argument, but it's not. Degrowth goes beyond that, right? To posit some kind of biological framework for limits, which political ecologists should find suspicious. So that's, that's my feeling is I'm absolutely pro degrowth, except when I'm not. <laughs> yeah, you've, uh, you've argued that political ecology is the, the symptom of a, a global transition. And a, a, I love this phrase, a product of the anxiety of the Anthropocene time of accelerating change and it seems that degrowth scholarship is also a symptom it is, uh, it is. That's good. so i'm curious what can political ecologists and degrowth scholars accomplish in this global transition are there tools that they can provide us uh, to work in the direction of a more just future well i think any combination of acknowledgements through the course of research discovery and interaction with people here there or anywhere that labor and nature and within the framework of colonial history and gender are real, begin to lend themselves all kinds of very practical policy solutions. I mean, um, uh, you know, what's the biggest crisis around biodiversity in, in coffee plantations? What we found is that it had to do with the fact that 
workers don't want to labor without health care. So suddenly you're, you're, what you can make the argument is that biodiversity and healthcare are linked. And then you have a policy tool, which is like, oh, more rural health clinics might be good for birds. It's very practical. It's a very practical socialist um, policy measure, uh, but it's counterintuitive. Like what does healthcare have to do with birds? I think degrowth and political ecology and all of its relate, related fields, which have many names now, can help us by making those connections in ways where we can get, you can get your hands on the levers of change. Uh, and you can actually do, okay, so you wanna limit things. You can't limit everything. Where can I get the most bang for my buck? Where should I be focusing my political? This is where the politics come in. Research shouldn't tell you like, this is the answer, but it should tell you, this is a, one of the better ways to get at a solution than some other way. So, you know, mass sterilization, it's not gonna get you environmental improvement. It's just gonna get you colonial violence. Um, but healthcare, rural healthcare uh, and education, especially of girl children around the world uh, and the availability of, a, of abortion on demand uh, could have all kinds of positive environmental outcomes, you know? Um, putting women in charge could really be helpful. Uh, so I think that these traditions are show, not they should be show, not tell traditions. So you can say that, I can tell you that like I just did, but it's much more powerful if I can actually show you the birds, let you hear from the workers. Now, does do in the process, am I doing certain violence to the voices of those people and of the birds arguably? Yeah, that's right, I am, you know? But that's the trade-off of, yeah. of like trying to turn ideas into new possibilities. So that's what I call it. Are you ever scared of the growth of the eco-modernist push towards tech as a saving grace? Uh, you know, the, the almighty uh, technological Jesus in a sense. Yes, I mean, you know, that's what political ecology also critiques. So if political ecology has a critique of some of the elements that degrowth hints at, it's also got a huge history of critique of techno fixes. Every intervention just proliferates more violence. Uh, but I've got more tools than that. I've got more tools than just like a Heideggerian reactionary, almost quasi-fascist fear of technology. I've got political economy, which tells me that it isn't the technology that's doing the violence. It's the economy to which it is tethered. Technology is just technology. Can technology save the earth? No, but the economy is gonna require specific technologies to let it enunciate and, and, and produce uh, the redistributive needs of, of people in the earth. So of course I don't like techno fix thinking and the worst kind of eco-modernism I suppose has that in it. In the same way that the worst kind of growth has, you know, maybe not from certain degrowth scholars, but it has certain kinds of limits thinking that smack of Malthusianism. The problem, the, good, the, op the opportunity is that most people don't hold e either of those extreme positions and they should be talking. That's all, mm -hmm. that's, that's a simple argument is that once you really start talking about real projects, actual policies, so on and so forth, where you put your yeah. money, where you put your political power, I think you get a much more agreement than you do disagreement. I meant less in the academia, I think, and more in terms of like the global stage. For example, we've seen recently the Earthshot Prize, I think yeah, it's called yeah, um, yeah. a lot of- yeah, That's like, still, that's still screwed up. I remember Breakthrough itself, 
of the Institute comes out of the Palo Alto experience, which is which smacks of all of this, you know, for God's sake, SpaceX, you want to talk about, you want to talk about where your resources shouldn't be going. Um, uh, carbon capture, you know, more iffy, uh, yeah. tied to capitalism. It's, it might just be a deferral of the problem. I get that. But could it be bundled in a, in a, in a better kind of economic framework as part of a solution? Yeah. Don't take it off the table. So yes, the global conversation around this, to the degree that it's techno fixed, is something we should be critiquing. Audibly, loud, uh, should some of the technologies that are being lauded be removed from the conversation as possible parts of the solution? That would be reprehensibly irresponsible given the enormity of the crisis and the lack of faith in human beings under certain kinds of creative economies to solve problems. So yeah, I hate that stuff. Yeah. But that's not all the stuff that there is in that stuff. Mm -hmm. There's more. That's the problem with the debate. Yeah. I don't think it's actually a debate. That's why actually I, my teacher didn't agree with me when I wrote it into my essay, but I was trying to remake your hatch and seed uh, uh, metaphor into a Swiss knife metaphor in my essay, because I felt like we could reuse parts of the things that we broke as a constructive uh, oh, I, I really i really like that yeah okay I mean, I like there you go now i have you on tape i can <laughs> but i just love a good metaphor and i try to mix them as much as possible till i'm totally incoherent so i'm already predisposed <laughs> yeah. well we uh we've i think we we've got to wrap it up and, and let you go unfortunately but uh, maybe we can end on uh, a little bit of a happy note is there something that that gives you hope uh, these days, uh, what's what's your your source of optimism? You know, when the scene, the stage, the theater play sometimes looks so damn dark and dire out there. Uh, is there something that you look to that can gives you hope and optimism in your day to day? Um, there are lots of things. I don't know which one I'd pick as my primary example, so I'll pick the most counterintuitive. That's that the persistence of people cultures, autonomous collectivities in the face of all the things that should have eliminated them always surprises me. If you take the incredible power of the one dozen native nations in this state, um, genocide didn't make them go away. <laughs> they still managed the land. They stocked the fisheries with muskie and with walleye over which racists used to threaten their lives for spearfishing. The native nations of this state actually have hatcheries where they pour um, fish into the, into, into the ecosystem. Uh, the Menominee run a giant forest that is based on scientific forestry and ancient tradition merged in a way that is uh, to me um, uh, mysteriously transcendent. And I think if people if the Ho-Chunk survived genocide, and, and it was by the skin of their teeth, but it's because they did it, not because white people left them alone, that's for damn sure. They were thrown out of this place three, four times. If they can survive that, come back, claim the land, claim tradition, and begin to restore their ecosystems, then there's hope for the rest of us. I, I guess that's what I got. Yeah, no, that sounds like uh, great words to end on. I, I love that.
Paul Robbins, thank you so much for coming on the show, for giving us your time, for giving us your your wisdom. Absolutely. You are indeed helpful. I, I don't want you to to leave here I, thinking I, the I same thing that, that you thought. You might not be as helpful as you think. No, no, you really are. I think you've opened a lot of doors uh, in our collective brains here. At, at least here at Zoom, I can speak for our class. I know, I know so for a fact. So thank you for your work. Thank you for coming here. And thank you for having me. Over and he's trying to sympathize with her.